This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Like a warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning, Professor Ward Scott here on the Ward Scott Files. I think we've got something going on. I'm not sure I can't get a high sign from my group about weather. I don't know whether we run my little uh, introduction on that yet or not. So um, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to put that off uh, uh, in a little bit here. I can't understand or hear them. So um, we're, we are experimenting with something new here, and I don't want to botch it up. We're in the Melvin Law Studio with 50 years of experience, which is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. And uh, Melvin Law Studio, uh, Melvin Law is a full-service uh, uh, legal uh, firm, and they won't back down. We're protected 24-7 uh, by, of course, um, uh, Crime prevention. So you can contact them at cpss.not.net. And of course, our mugshots are brought by Reese T. McDaniel. Uh, so um, we've got to um, uh, proceed here for a minute. Maybe we'll work this out at the bottom of the hour. Um, the sports world is really kind of upended right now. I've got to go ahead and talk about it for a moment because um, um, the, the uh, giant. There's three giants, of course, in, in tennis, and I want to give you a little update on it. I know everybody's not a tennis fan, but there's three giants, of course, are Federer, who's now 40 years old. And I can tell you <clears throat> from having been 40 years old, your athletic skills, if you're trying to compete at the pro level in tennis, <clears throat> greatly dissipate by then. So Federer's not in the game right now. He's had a knee injury. He's a huge draw, great gentleman, and been around for a long time. Of course, Djokovic is still there. And probably the bets are he'll be in the final. He'll face Kyrgios. And, but the newcomer on the block is Kyrgios. He's kind of the bad boy. He reminds me of Elie Nastasi from years ago, who was a bad boy, but who was extremely talented. This King Kyrgios is probably uh, the biggest uh, fan draw because of his uh, controversial behavior on the court. And when he wants to settle down and really play, he will. But the big news is uh, Rafa Nadal can't play. Uh, he would have played Kyrgios today, <clears throat> but Kyrgios now gets what's called a walkover. And uh, the walkover means that you've met, advanced, he's been advancing to the finals, and he will not have to um, compete to get to the finals because his opponent has pulled himself out of the, uh, the uh, contest because of, a, of an abdominal tear. Now, you know, this guy is uh, one of the most rugged, muscular tennis players for years. He's 35 years old now, I think, on the tennis court. That's Rafa Nadal. Um, he fights the tennis ball. He's not the most uh, pleasing person to watch. You certainly wouldn't want to have your uh, young player imitate him because of the contortions that Nadal has mastered over the years in order to get the high spin on the ball. Uh, which seems to be uh, very much a remote possibility for anybody else to play the way he does. So he has a signature game, but he's out of it. <clears throat> Kyrgios has a signature game in that he has uh, a grip and a, 
of preparation for the ball that enables him now to hit <clears throat> the tennis ball or hands harder than the best major league pitchers can pitch the ball. They, I guess the best pitchers get up around 100 uh, miles an hour. Kyrgios can easily hit it over 100 miles an hour. Uh, he can serve up around 130, 140 miles an hour. And on the grass, that's almost unre uh, un uh, un uh, unreturnable. So I wanted to give you a little bit of heads up. This is all the national news in the sports world that um, these guys are kind of uh, getting to the place where the bodies just won't take it much longer. And Nadal has been on kind of borrowed time for quite some time. He's had foot injuries. He's had knee injuries. And now he has an abdominal tear, which really can't, he can't serve well with it. And he can't twist his body the way he can. So it's going to be an exciting day in the, in the, in the tennis world tomorrow. It's complicated by the fact that Wimbledon has banned Russian players from the tournament uh, protesting Putin's behavior in, uh, with Ukraine, which is very controversial. Carter did this in 1980, took our Olympic team out of the Olympics because of Russia and Afghanistan. And ironically, later on, we're involved in Afghanistan. And of course, you know the story from there. Biden just walks off and leaves all his military equipment in Afghanistan. It's crazy. Um, when you start examining uh, political interference and combat and civilian life, those three things of the three-legged stool uh, just don't make any sense, and they never have, and we're going to cover that story a little bit more today when we talk about the assassination of the former uh, Japanese uh, uh, prime minister. So the, uh, the um, Nadal world and the sports world is, uh, is a big story. I wanted to cover it a little bit. I know it's not Coach Hogg's locker room, but uh, we will be of course, um, watching it, it'll be a uh, it'll be a very interesting match to see who prevails. They're both tremendous players with tremendous skills. So um, the other thing that's here uh, I want to talk about a little bit locally. We've been watching this for a while. It's a simmering, simmering argument and dispute uh, that goes on, and that is um, uh, neighborhoods. And uh, you know, there's a there's a lady here in town whose name is Kim Tanzer. I've never met her. Uh, who seems to take on uh, some of the misinformation quite regularly. And the politicians have tons of misinformation about uh, real estate, just like they have uh, locally anyway, the Gainesville politicians, just like they have tons of misinformation about so many other things, and, uh, particularly when you factor in how young they are and how they don't go back very far in the community and Yet they're up there making these big decisions based on uh, ideology, really. There's not much else you can say they're based on. And uh, <clears throat> you have um, them uh, going off and talking about, you know, we have how low can you go, Bowtie Poe, uh, the, the boy named Lauren over there talking about it's not decent of you if you don't stick affordable housing in uh, the regular neighborhoods. Um, but it's a paradox as this applies to the so-called black neighborhood, which I've entitled the show today, The Black Neighborhood. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the black, the so-called black neighborhood, once again, it's kind of like a, when I was a kid, I used to, uh, used to do a lot of, I, I could spin a yo-yo real well. You know, as kids, you learn to spin, I did anyway, learn to spin tops and I learned to spin yo-hos, yo-yos uh, yo and and I um, feel like that the so-called black neighborhood is a yo-yo and the string is attached to the finger of the whites liberals 
who think they know best. They don't live in the black neighborhood, but they think they know the best thing for the black neighborhood. It's, it's not an unusual uh, position that the white liberal takes. Um, first of all, he thinks he knows better than everybody about everything. Certainly knows better about everything than Republican does. Uh, he knows more about everything than the blacks do, but he uh, convinces the blacks that they'll improve if they just listen to him. And at the same time, puts out the spin that the, bad, the Republicans are bad to listen to. But the Republicans are the actual business people. Uh, they're the ones who actually um, make the money, make the businesses. Uh, once upon a time, <clears throat> when the city of Gainesville was five commissioners, it was uh, governed primarily by business people. And the, the city ran a little bit differently, quite, you know, quite assuredly. But somewhere along the line, it took a turn. Uh, and the business people really got outnumbered. I think it comes in about the pea green underhand time when the hothouse plant, which I call her, she was raised artificially. Uh, she was raised by a college, a college family and went to a college and got the college degrees. And I think she knows it all. And really, uh, and quite arrogant about it, and quite, uh, um, a, a, you know, quite a quite a political bully. And it, it sort of it sort of works its way through the system from that point on. Um, the beginning of it is the biomass plant, of course, uh, which uh, we used to have a caller said, "Why don't they make it a, a big brewery?" <clears throat> but now you have a couple. You have some black so-called black neighborhoods around here. Uh, we have a uh, Spring Hill, Sugar Hill, we have uh, Duval, we have Porter's, Pleasant Street area. Um, I can tell you that when we at the college decided we had to expand the college to downtown Blunt Center, uh, we caught all kinds of grief uh, from um, the white liberals who went in and stirred up the blacks and uh, in that cool area right around where we expanded the Blunt Santa Fe campus. Um, we named it after Mr. Blunt, who gave a tremendous amount of money to make it happen. Uh, but uh, we had a, we had a problem. Um, no, don't tear down the, the old houses here in uh, this black neighborhood to expand the college. And we had a, 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 a board of trustee member, Winston Bradley, who went to the black neighborhoods and said, listen, he said, um, I am, uh, <clears throat> I am. I was born and raised up in the very neighborhood you're trying to get us to save, and I'm trying to forget it ever existed. My whole goal was to work my way out of that neighborhood and to better myself, and indeed Winston Bradley did. He became a, uh, an insurance agent, did quite well, uh, fine gentleman, got on the uh, Santa Fe Board of Trustees, and he was really the one that was instrumental in going out and convincing the people that the so-called black neighborhood once upon a time, just like the two-lane highway and just like uh, on-street parking and, and just like uh, so many things that, that are also gone. Uh, I'm not going to say gone with the wind, but uh, basically that's how they've gone, uh, you know, are now behind us in the rearview mirror and we need to move on. Uh, but there are th these, um, these issues that, well, what do you do with the people who lived in the black neighborhood? Now, we know that there used to be a place called Carroll Estates here um, that, uh, for example, is a pretty good example. Used to be a very nice neighborhood, as I remember, if I have the right name here, uh, in Northeast Gainesville, um, until Section 8 housing went into it, and then it went on the skids. And the way I know this is because 
I was having lunch with some people yesterday who grew up in the in the town who remember that and who are uh, uh, very much against, as you might see, this becoming a groundswell resistance to the um, um, arrogance of the city commission, the city pups, if you will, um, that um, there's some magic to keeping intact the black neighborhood. There is if the black neighborhood can sustain itself. But, you know, I have to also remind you that I had a student who did a research paper on the black neighborhood when he was my student at the college, who himself was black, who's now a member of the GPD police force last time I checked. Great guy. And he did a study of, of the black neighborhood. And he said the problem with the black neighborhood is it's not loyal to itself. And he said that in, he studied comparatively. He went and studied a place where primarily uh, not just Asian, but Chinese lived. And he studied in er another area where Hispanics live and this and that. And he found out in those neighborhoods, uh, a dollar bill, and I never forget this uh, uh, finding he came to, presented a dollar bill in those neighborhoods. And the number was, we'll go around that neighborhood five times before it leaves the neighborhood. And by that, he meant these neighborhoods get together and, uh, you know, do the, I do the dry cleaning and uh, you do the restaurant and we all have a business. We all support each other. And that becomes the, uh, the the way in which the neighborhood thrives. Well, that doesn't happen in, in the so-called black neighborhood. He said, this black uh, student, uh, in the, you know, it doesn't go around five times in the black neighborhood. It doesn't even go around one time. It gets out of the neighborhood immediately. So there's a whole lot of controversy going on about the so-called uh, black neighborhood. But I think it's a misnomer to just focus it on black neighborhoods. We're just talking now about neighborhoods, the, the, the merit of neighborhoods. Now, uh, what, what really hurt uh, neighborhoods was busing. Because when you had busing, you broke up uh, Lincoln High School. You broke up the neighborhood school. Uh, in fact, uh, the headquarters of the school board right now in this, in this city was a neighborhood school. And once the school board shut down that uh, uh, school and made it a office for them, the neighborhood didn't have any reason to be a neighborhood. Neighborhoods are built around kids, okay? Neighborhoods are built around kids. Now, in places like Jacksonville and places like that, what broke up neighborhoods were interstate highways. And, you know, they would cut right through what once been a fashionable neighborhood, and that's the end of the neighborhood. Um, this, is, this is the peril of so-called progress. So how do you protect a neighborhood? Well, I can tell you there's only one way to protect it. That I am experienced with this because I, I help protect the Northeast Historical Society neighborhood. I'm going to tell you what you do. You buy it. If you want to protect the neighborhood, buy it. Okay? Hold on a minute. It's as simple as that. But you have to have people who buy it, who want to develop it internally and stringently. And if you're going to preserve a neighborhood, then you want to preserve that neighborhood uh, with things that are attractive about that neighborhood. And if they once were attractive and you want to refurbish that attractiveness, which we did in Northeast Gainesville, then you have to Put the money where your mouth is. Now, I'm going to tell you, I did that. There was a block 
in Northeast 3rd Street and Northeast 4th Avenue that a good friend, a good member of the community, I know him, I saw him just the other day, came in and tore down something called the Hampton House. Now, the Hamptons were the original. If you go down and look at the plat maps in Gainesville, you will see the name Hampton all over the place. Original downtown Gainesville was really kind of family owned. And the Hamptons, Judge Hampton and those people, the descendants of that family and tied to that family, uh, were kind of the beginners of the city. And this Hampton house, I got to tell you, was the most magnificent house in the whole city, maybe the county. It had a it had a a landing on the second between the first and second floor of the staircase that you could have filmed gone with the wind out of. It was a fantastic place. And Reesburg, the zoning allowed it. Let me tell you, my friends, Kim Tanser doesn't know this. She wasn't around when this happened. Uh, certainly the poodle doesn't know it, and these city kids don't know it. Reesburg, I believe it was the fellow's name, came in and did what the city allowed him to do and destroyed it. To the ground, the Hampton House. Destroyed it to the ground. Because he was allowed to. Boy, I'm telling you, a hue and cry went up. There were people there who loved those, those homes you can't duplicate. Those homes are, are still, yeah, the Gracie Mansion, which is occupied by a friend of mine, a physician, retired physician. And it was saved by his investment there. And so what I did, is I went and got partners, and we bought that block from the fellow who tore down the Hampton House to stop. He was going to put up an old folks' high rise. Are you with me, students? Are you following this? This is history. Only yours truly, I believe, can relate to you. I lived it, and I invested in it. Okay. The building has been completely raised. The landing is gone. We have vacant ground right down to the bare earth. We put together investors. I was one of them. And we bought the block. And that stopped. And then we formed the historical society. And then we began to seek investors who would put their money where their mouth was and help us preserve it. One of the real challenges was the Hotel Thomas, which became the East Campus of Santa Fe, and eventually now our, our city of Gainesville office buildings. That's, that's helped the neighborhood. That hotel, which Robert Frost used to stay in when he came here, was not raised the way the Hampton House was. So we stopped it. Then we turned around and renovated. And I renovated, along with a partner, 215 Northeast 3rd Street. I didn't remodel. I restored. And it was on the Parade of Homes at one point when Nathan Collier's daddy was a commissioner, city commissioner. And buddy, let me tell you something. It ain't easy to find craftsmanship that can do what we needed to do. We were not remodeling. We were restoring. Because the 
attempt had been, and we stopped it, was to turn that into student rentals. They're going to take the old homes, chop them up, and make them student rentals. That was the only feasible thing to do because the downtown was dead because I-75 had come. And so that's the way Lillian started. You could buy the whole block at Eisenhower rates if you could find a business to put in there. And the investors and behind that project, and I named this place, I was the one who said, keep the sign, call it Lillian's. We were all together then, and we had to work. I had to go to the city commission to talk to them. Uh, Mark Goldstein, Gene Chalmers, these people were the commissioners, as I remember. And we had to convince them that the way to save the neighborhood is to get investors to invest in it. You're not going to get it and get them to be ideally local. Local. There was a heart surgeon here whose wife just died, nice man, cardiovascular physician, and he bought uh, the, one of the homes right there at Inners, and, and, and I drove through the neighborhood yesterday. Uh, it's still a neighborhood. So the problem is when you get outside, yeah, we had some great parties. When you get outside, <clears throat> Investors who come and don't care about the community. See, our, our investors came from us. We lived here. We didn't go get some outside investor to stake a high-rise old folks home in the middle of historic Gainesville. I mean, it, it just wouldn't go. But now what's taken over Gainesville are outside corporations. They could care less about the quality of life in Gainesville. They don't live here. All they want to do is get the captured renter. And the captured renter is the student. And by the way, while they're getting the captured renter, they're driving up the price of land to the, to the level where you can't start out with a quote-unquote starter home in a single-family neighborhood which is not going to exist if these goofballs get a chance to go ahead and uh, do what they are allowing to do by zoning. Um, so um, now here we are uh, in a quandary because we've got commissioners that are stone dumb about what's going on and, and, and uh, people licking their chops because uh, there's a sucker born every minute with outside the community capital to come in and create what I look, what I call Soviet style housing. So the Duval neighborhood and the Fifth Avenue and Pleasantry, all that, if you want to save it, buy it. Where are the black entrepreneurs? Where are the black entrepreneurs? Now, for a long time, Phil Emmer was the one who developed East Gainesville. He developed Fifth Avenue. But I got to tell you, Fifth Avenue was a great community. I, was go, I, went, I used to go down there to the, to, the, to the music and the food. During segregation, ironically, integration broke it up. A theory from the federal government that everybody should be equal. 
when the truth of the matter is everybody should be unique. And people like to hang out with their kind. So you've got some crazy stuff going on here in this city commission of Gainesville that doesn't get and doesn't understand the past. And so if they don't understand the past, nobody's come and talk to me, which is I like. I mean, you know, please stay away. I mean, because they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. Yes, and that was the uh, great family. Jack Coach, uh, Jack Phillips, one of my players from years ago, watches every day. Uh, uh, that was a, that was a great family. Um, but 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 um, the Youngs, the Youngs. So so um, I don't know where we go with preserving the lessons from the past. So the black neighborhood um, is a victim once again of. I guess good intentions, but lousy understanding of finances. And I, I got to tell you that I'm not real high on the finance, financial talent of lefties. Uh, they think money comes from the government. Uh, they want to secure life. Uh, they, they, they don't want to take risk. The biggest thing that characterizes an entrepreneur is the willing to take the willingness to take risk and responsibility for that risk and responsibility for your debt. That makes the honorable man. Now, when people walk away from their debt, you need to walk away from them. It's pure, it's pure simple. If they're not honorable people and they're not people of their word, and all the real estate deals I ever did, I had a broker's license. I had a handshake agreement. And if I was ever betrayed, it was my fault because I made a bad choice of character. And I never made that. I only worked with people who had total confidence. So if you go down to Northeast 3rd Street right now and Northeast 4th Avenue, you will see three homes on that block. Okay? Beautiful homes. All right? And let me tell you who I partnered with on those deals in the end was one of my former students who lives down there. Last time I checked, he came to me as my student in 1983 from Venezuela. And uh, built the homes, bought the blocks from me. Luis Diaz, town of Tioga. And he lives there. So that's a story of neighborhoods as your warthog here in the command center lived it, lived it and paid for it, invested my own money in it. <clears throat> and I was considered to be a kind of foolish risk. It was not the wisest place all the contemporary thinking said then to put money. But, you know, that's kind of me. I'm out here right now doing a show. Hey, it's not the easiest things to do. If I was a sports show, I'd have to turn away sponsors. But I'm a political talk show. Got to go hunt them. Ain't easy to find them. They're scared. So if you see one of us sponsors on our 
on our show. You better help them understand and respect them. We got a new one coming on at the bottom of the hour here. So it's a risky world. But the government ain't going to take care of you. The government will not take care of you. I talked to a young lady just a couple of days ago and said she'd like to have a, own a home. Start out. I mean, she's 27 years old. I said, by golly, that'd be the smartest thing you could do. But I don't know if you can do it anymore. You know, once upon a time, you could get what was called a starter home. And then what you could do is build equity and then sell or even maybe rent and move on. And you could build up that way. But this whole thing about, I don't care if it's black neighborhoods, if it's historic neighborhoods, uh, I don't care what it is. If you want to save it, you got to buy it. Okay? It's as simple as that. We're going to take a break now, right now on the Ward Hall Command Center. We'll be right back. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. I'm back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly World Command Center in the Law Studio. 
been outside here working on the farm and I'd be darned if I don't get out there and get a frog in my throat, as they say all the time. So bear with me as uh, our new sponsor is Lewis Oil Company. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll be setting up uh, a weather report with them, which uh, will be coming forth soon, probably starting Monday. And we'll keep you up to date on uh, what's going on in terms of the uh um, the, the Florida world and maybe even a little bit of the national and international because a lot of people listen to us all over the world. By the way, what I, I want to mention to you uh, in, uh, in you know following along on that is to uh, I briefly let you know uh, that we're being listened to. I've got a couple of international correspondents uh, and here is one of them says, we listen to your podcast in Ukraine, Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic. Um, these are soldiers who are in the combat area, our advisors to um, the, of course, Ukraine, Russia, fiasco, really nasty thing. Uh, but we're being listened to there in Ukraine, Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic. I thought you'd be interested in that. So we may need to get the weather even over there um, since we're being listened to all over the world. Um, it's, um, and that's not a happy message that they send me about what's going on there. It's, um, it's really, I don't know. We're going to cover that a little bit in a second because it involves, um, what's happened in Japan. Um, you know, I think on, at the same time right now, talking about failures of leadership, which is basically what I'm talking about in the city of Gainesville the neighborhoods. Biden's uh, rating is as about as low as it can go. I, I don't know if it's possible to bottom out anymore. And he, comp- he continues to be, uh, 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 you know, as we covered, you know, the humiliating evacuation from Afghanistan, um, the COVID vaccine confusion, uh, the border free for all, um, this inflation, energy prices, even had a baby formula shortage. What in the world, how much more can he touch that he screws up? Um, you know, and yet nobody seems to bear down on him. If this were, the speculation is, of course, it's uh, all hypothesis and speculation. It'd be completely different if it were Trump. Uh, but Biden gets a, um, gets a break. And even some of the Democrats are beginning to try to distance themselves from him. They've tried to run up uh, Harris as an alternative, and she can't get it right. Uh, she sits in front of a misspelled Louisiana sign, and it, it, you know the media picked up on that and kind of emphasized it. So nobody's got any confidence in uh, in her leadership if there's any such thing to start with. Um, but they're also, and I got to thinking about this, and this is an article that's come out that's written by. Um, um, one of the editors over at the journal. Um, I don't remember that there's a cabinet. Can you anybody can can anybody out there in Fort Scott Listerland um, name a cabinet member? And the cabinet is supposedly a bunch of advisors and staff uh, to the president. And I can't name one. I got to thinking about that. Um, you know, old Biden. He claimed if he got elected back then. He was going to have a, a whole bunch of really smart advisors. Yeah, you know, I got to thinking about advisors. 
And I got to I got to say this with all kinds of apologies. You know, the Vietnam War um, was. We declared victory and left, but we really lost, but we could have won. Have we not had betrayal by the media? It's kind of a contemporary historical analysis. The, the Tet Offensive, all that business was um, um, convinced that, um, you know, made us out to be evil and them to be victims and we shouldn't be interfering. But, you know, what really, really, according to this analysis, which I think is kind of interesting, I'll pass it along to you. Uh, this was in uh, uh, Washington Examiner a while back, and I just kind of, um, well, all the way back to April 3rd. April 30th is when I pulled this out of the midnight auto yard. April 30th, if you recall, uh, marks the fall of Saigon and the quote-unquote end of the war in Vietnam. And the historical image of that is of everybody clamoring up on top of the embassy to get on the last helicopter out of there. But I didn't really um, think about this until I read this, but it makes perfect sense. Um, the, um, men, and I got to tell you, this is exactly what my father told me and my brother. He said, you're not going to that, that war because they're not going to try to win. And my father was a heavily decorated World War II guy. And man, it was one of the most shocking things my brother and I ever heard. Unexpected things my brother and I ever heard my father say. Because we thought being the kind of guy he was, it's your turn to go. That was not the story. And I'll be darned if this analysis doesn't support, I guess, his wisdom. Um, the men, according to this historical look back, who fought in Vietnam were not allowed to win. <clears throat> the politicians in Washington, D.C., and they have singled out the number one architect of this failure uh, was Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense. Now, I got to thinking about this because of this thing about advisors to the president. Kennedy, oh boy, when he came in, he came in and replaced a World War II hero, uh, General Eisenhower. So he had to depict himself as someone who would take us away from war, who would take us into the wonderland of peace. And if he had anything going on, he did it secretly. Um, he had advisors in Vietnam. You can read The Ugly American and, and get a take on that by the guys who were there. Um, and, and my good buddy Ken Hilliard was an airborne combat medic there who really uh, paid the price has got it exactly right. Way too many restrictions, Ken, because of the rules of engagement. Now, who came up with the rules of engagement? Robert McNamara. Who was Robert McNamara? He had run Ford Motor Company. He was kind of our George Herbal. He made the numbers crunch for Ford. And Kennedy brought him in as a cabinet member. 
and McNamara made the numbers crunch for Vietnam. And he invented the rules of engagement, all R-O-E. He himself had no experience in war, did not understand how wars were fought. And when Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson kept McNamara on the cap. And they just kept repeating the same mistakes. So Johnson, and this is all living history to me, and I'm sure it is to a couple of some people watching. Johnson invented the Gulf of Tonkin myth that we had been fired on. It's the same thing that Lincoln did to start the Civil War. Lincoln sailed into uh, the waters of South Carolina, invading territorial space of South Carolina. And South Carolina fired the shot heard around the world. And Lincoln said, see, I was just going down there to restock a fort we have there, Fort Sumter. And they fired on it. How dare? Well, we sailed into by accident, but it was really by on purpose, the Gulf of Tonkin and the North Vietnamese fired on us. And we used that as an as an excuse to crank up the bombing. So McNamara, according to this analysis, which I think hindsight, now how many years later is this? That was 60, this is almost what, 60 years for God's sakes? 50, 60 years? I think, by the way, that's how long we'll have, we'll, we'll have to wait to get the truth about the elections, by the way. Um, McNamara convinced Johnson uh, that um, this method of fighting the war would be put in place through the ROEs. Ground forces could only engage in, quote-unquote, inhabited areas if the enemy was identified and only for defensive purposes. So, you know, we had to fight, we had to, by the Gulf of Tonkin, we had to say we were fired on, for, and so we could fire back as a defense, as a defense. Use of artillery could only be used with the permission of the province chief. Leaflets or loudspeakers needed to be used to warn civilians of incoming fire. And soldiers were ordered to shoot only to wound. And then, on top of that, McNamara told Johnson that fleeing enemy troops needed to be told to halt before firing. Hanoi, along with all major ports and rail stations, were off limits. from attacks from the air. 
MiGs could only be engaged in the air and only if they displayed hostile intent. You see the political crap in all this? This is kind of interesting. I pulled it out of the midnight auto yard because I got to thinking about Biden and his advisors and his stupidity. And I'm wondering, you know, there's a precedent for this. Kennedy, Johnson, the newly developed beyond visual range missiles were useless because fighters needed to wait to see the enemy before they could fire them. And the SAMs were off limits unless they launched first. So the primary myth about Vietnam also is that our fighting men never had a chance at winning. That's crazy. This is probably the biggest, I can't beep narrative. It might even be where the beep narrative started. The whole narrative is a big beep. Then, because of the press, when the Vietnam guys came home, they were ridiculed, particularly it was one photograph, if you recall it, uh, of a girl naked crying after a napalm attack. And it was used to illustrate that America was napalming civilians, that America was baby killers, but the planes, according to research I'm holding here in my hands, that actually dropped the napalm were South Vietnamese planes flown by South Vietnamese pilots. And there's some other myths that this analysis from you guys out there who were involved with this can confirm or deny that the war was fought mostly by draftees. In fact, two-thirds of men who fought in Vietnam were volunteers. Um... Vietnam veterans were treated poorly after the return. Um, it wasn't until 1995 that they... Now, this is... I'm going back to McNamara. I'm going back to these rules of engagement. You know, the same thing is happening with cops right now. We've got this big exodus of people who want to be cops. These same rules of engagement that got us for a failure in Vietnam are now being used in places that are all shot up. Well, I thought that's pretty interesting. I hope that you understand that it took 50, 60 years. And I think it's going to take that like now, as I say, for whatever went on in uh, this last go-round, as you know. Beep. <clears throat> but now we've got a guy here who, who just seems to exponentially have increased uh, the screw-ups that have been visited by previous guys from his party. Um, it is... Um, it's kind, of, it's kind of an untold story. Just like this Rules of Engagement by McNamara. Was, that, was, that was an untold story. I want to finish up here with you on something that uh, 
Um, I'm just looking at Ken Hilder's comments here. Um, yeah. Good, good comments, Ken. Thank you. Says he had one colonel after an ambush told him to clean up the brass and stop shooting until someone got wounded. Or we had received 15 rounds. I, I tell you, that's uh, court martial stuff there. I mean, that's, that's court martial stuff. But um, let's talk over to um, spend a few minutes talking about a guy named Abe, Abe Sinso. When I woke up this morning, I checked my encrypted message system, and there was a message there from my war correspondent connection who told me um, before I'd even read it that the prime, former prime minister of Japan had been shot. And at the time he sent the message, um, he didn't know if the man was going to uh, live or die. And it, he knew uh, the man personally, he was a good man, but that what he was trying to do was uh, amend Article 9. Well, you know, I got to looking around at what was Article 9. And it's kind of ironic because when I fell off last night, the La La Land, I was watching the brain sucker of the TV, and it was it was a history channel, and it was going over World War II. And it wasn't pulling any punches. And, of course, my father was all through that. And um, I was born at the beginning of it. So uh, I, was, I was interested, of course, in it. And then I wake up in the morning to my encrypted message from my war correspondent friend in the field who says that uh, be, be on alert, the minister has been shot and it probably is over Article 9. Now, what is Article 9 uh, that uh, was perhaps uh, behind? We really don't know, but he says, my friend says, there was so much emotion over Article 9. Article 9 um, is an application. And we imposed the 1946 Constitution upon Japan. And um, Article 9 said that Japan could not have any functional defense force. And, you know, at the time, now here's, here's a good example. All these people who want to go back and, and slam slave owners and all this stuff. At the time, preventing Japan from having a defense, quote-unquote, defense force would have made total sense. And one of the things you have to remember that Truman did not allow MacArthur to do. After we bombed Japan into submission, which we had to do. We had to stop that war. Because the Japanese would not give up. MacArthur went there to reestablish a government and to create an independent government for them. And Truman said we didn't win to dominate them and conquer them. We could have. Of course, the generals didn't like all that. But so we rebuilt Japan. But we put in the Constitution that they could not have a fully functional defense force. Well, uh, this prime minister who was killed yesterday, he knew it was a cautious approach, but he wanted to amend that issue to allow Japan to create a military buildup 
And you have to understand, I haven't consulted our foreign affairs consultant about this, Ramsey Semarai, but I'm pretty sure he'll agree. He, Mr. Shinto, felt, and I think I'm saying his name right, it time to revise that constitution because of the aggression of China. Because of the aggression of China. The saber rattling of China. And surely should China, which has been sailing out of those waters and building islands and threatening Taiwan and all this, become even more aggressive, I, I think we would want Japan helping us. So the chances of this minister's pushing through these moderate changes were very, very much not guaranteed. Uh, to for a constitutional change in Japan, uh, two-thirds of the majority in both houses had to go along with it. It had to have 51% support uh, in a referendum. Um, currently, there was not a coalition as he was no longer the, the minister, but he was out making public appearances. Um, didn't have the seats um, and needed more seats in their lower house. It was a tricky political negotiation with the People's Party and the Constitutionalist Party. Um, it was really uh, um, rupturing in many ways a settled kind of agreement about Japan's military role in the world that people had come to accept. So, and you, you got to wonder how many of them are really against Japan, China's aggression. Uh, but it was a major, extraordinary emotional issue, Article 9. And uh, Article 9 is, doesn't have any ambiguity in it at all. It's an unambiguous statement that Japan will never again be an aggressor nation. Never again. So, any attempt to uh, mend this became a high-profile public interest. And polling showed it was very problematic and very difficult to gauge public opinion. Um, they took a poll in January, 44.8% of the respondents answered in favor. Um, some were opposed. Mr. Shinto attempted to push this amendment through after the Olympics. At this stage, it, did, it was too early to more speculate the obstacles. I have to think, and I have not got myself fully researched on this subject, having only heard the news this morning from my good, good friend, uh, Michael Yon, who is a war correspondent who uh, is a former heavy combat-involved person in Afghanistan and who honors the Ward Scott Files with keeping us up to date. 
on uh, what's going on all over the world uh, contacted me early this morning about that. So I think we need to watch how that goes down. Uh, assassinations like this where uh, ownership of weapons is heavily, heavily restricted in Japan by civilians is going to be, I'm sure, investigated very thoroughly uh, to see what was behind this deal. Um, you know, you, you just don't, you just can't tell at this moment exactly what was driving the car here. So I just wanted to tell you that um, um, the research team is a vast organization. I appreciate all of you who send us documents, who keep us involved. Um, I'm studying an issue right now, which I spent some time yesterday studying it um, that I may present on the air here locally soon um, that uh, has to do with uh, human trafficking in their community. We'll see how that works out, whether we go public with my research and my conversations yet. We haven't determined. So we're looking into all kinds of things as a community forum for you. We appreciate uh, uh, Lewis Oil coming on board with us. And um, now, Ken, I don't know if I can get him on again. I have no idea where he is, but uh, Ken here, you're saying he'd love to hear from him again. Uh, Michael's the real deal. Um, and uh, uh, so we'll keep you up to date. Appreciate the sponsors. Uh, appreciate you guys donating to us. And uh, we got a couple little glitches we're going to work out with our new uh, presentation we're going to start off with on Monday. And, uh, you know, have a little fun with it. So, uh, have a great weekend, and uh, we are busy on the farm today. We've got a lot of things to do. Got both tractors running, got uh, mowers going, uh, and the calves are getting big. And they're having so much fun running around out here. But, you know, life has ultimately another stop after Wendy Hill Farm in mind for them. I don't like to say it, but that's the way it works. Warthog Command Center out.